Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Zoe Chase. Today, as we sometimes do, we are bringing you a Planet Money special. Three special stories, one special show. Three stories that have aired on the radio, but not on the podcast. Three stories united by a common theme behind the label. And you know, Zoe, this is a personal one for me because I am often perceived in a certain way. I'm a big guy. Let's just say it. I have a pretty statuesque physique. You can tell by looking (laughs) that I can bench 350, 360. And, you know, people draw conclusions about me. They don't know that beneath this hulking exterior, I have a soft spot for romantic comedy. (laughs) You are a teddy bear on the inside. (laughs) Exactly. And let's be clear, also on the outside. (laughs) Right. Nothing I said was true. Right. Except for the romantic comedy part. I do have soft spot for those. People look at you, they think softy, and that is also what they get. Yes. There is uh, truth in advertising when it comes to my label. Not so. The three stories we're going to be bringing to you today, we're going to be looking behind the label and revealing a truth that is much more complicated. You know, you got you got to read the label. You got to read the label. If you don't read the label, you might get poisoned. Okay, first up, insurance companies. So when I say health insurance company, what is it that comes to mind immediately? Uh, denying coverage. <laughs> <laughs> um, Big, not bad, scary bureaucracy. Bureaucracies, exactly, right? Yeah, not a friendly, funny kind of thing. No, they have an Im- health insurance companies have an image problem. But for a long time, it didn't really matter what their image was to consumers because Consumers weren't really buying the products. In fact, a lot of times consumers couldn't buy the product even if they wanted to because they would get denied for pre-existing conditions and that sort of thing. Right. But if you've been paying attention at all, we know this is all going to change, right? So in a couple months, the health insurance exchanges that you may have heard about, those come from the new health care law. These things are going to open for business around the country. And the new health care law, the big news about it is that it's going to penalize many Americans for not buying insurance. At the same time, it's going to make it illegal for insurance companies to deny people coverage, all of which means there's going to be a lot more regular people shopping for insurance and a lot more insurance companies trying to change their image, sell themselves to these same customers. Trying to change the assumptions that are made about them when you say health insurance company, trying to change their label, the way they're seen. Sarah Varney with Kaiser Health News did this story for us. It sounds like a marketer's dream, captive shoppers directed by the government to buy your product. But when the product you're selling is health insurance, there are undoubtedly some pitfalls. Your customers may not love you. In fact, they may despise you. You doubled, tripled, quadrupled their premiums. You denied them coverage because of a pre-existing condition just when they needed you most. I think it may be too little too late for health insurance companies to now come out like, hey, we were just kidding the last 50 years. You know, we're really not the people that you think we are. I sat down with James Persolet, the co-founder of the viral marketing firm ThinkMoto in New York City, to talk through some solutions to these challenges. Not only do people dislike insurance companies, they're hard to tell apart. Customers will go to a website and see a boring list of indistinguishable names. Humana, Oxford, Blue Cross, HealthNet. The products and prices won't look that different. It's the perfect moment, says Persolet, for a little humor. You cannot really differentiate one insurance company from another, but you can differentiate who has the, the wackiest mascot or scenarios that are kind of fun to watch. And is that why we ended up with the Geico gecko? <laughs> exactly. I think Geico is the model insurance companies are probably going to gravitate to. 
Good thing about Geico is they've got, like, real live people working there 24-7. Geico has its talking lizard. Progressive car insurance has that perky woman named Flo. If comedy can work for a boring product like car insurance, it could work for health insurance, too. Another challenge health insurers face? They want young, healthy people, the people least willing to pay for coverage. Persley says insurers need to craft their message to reach that demographic. There could be product placement of Oxford within a jackass movie. So subliminally, you know, when Steve-O is bunch jumping uh, with a rubber band off the roof of a building, perhaps that rubber band has an Oxford logo on it. Health insurance companies could start claiming the same advertising spots reserved for Red Bull and Corona. Poolside parties at the Humana Cabana? And companies will have to go to where young adults spend their time, on their phones and inside video games. You could even see video games uh, integrate health insurance, marketing, um, you know, angry birds. um, You know, maybe there's angina birds. Or how about a health plan underwriting one of MTV's awesome reality television shows? The next Jersey Shore brought to you by Blue Cross Blue Shield. Persole has the tagline ready. Don't binge without blue. You know, really tie into this lifestyle that uh, allegedly kids want to have. Our motto around here is whatever happens, happens. As fun as all this sounds, it costs a lot of money for an insurance company to sign you up for the first time. So they want you to stick with them. Health plans will have to give customers a reason to pick a brand and stay loyal. Customer retention for insurance companies is going to be based upon some sort of reward, some sort of reason to stay with them. Personally, could easily see iTunes credits or a Starbucks card for paying your bill on time or staying healthy. Indeed, the health insurance company Humana already allows its customers to earn vitality bucks that can be redeemed at the Humana Vitality Mall. Keep your blood pressure in check? Earn a digital camera. One thing is for sure, we're all about to be blanketed with health insurance advertisements. And for the first time, the customer will become king. That was Sarah Varney with Kaiser Health News. Next up, the power of a label. Here's the situation. A store will stock two items identical in almost every way, often right next to each other. Only difference, they have two different labels. Oh, and there's one other thing. One label might cost twice as much as the other. And surprisingly, people often buy the more expensive label. Why? Zoe, why? (laughs) I don't know. David Kestenbaum is here. Thank goodness he talked to some of the people who pay more, and we'll find out why they do it. So where are you right now? Uh, I am at uh, Walgreens in Hyde Park. I am in the uh, pain relief aisle. This is Jesse Shapiro. When he's not doing silly stunts like this for a radio reporter, he's an economist at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Uh, I'm looking at uh, Bayer Aspirin for seven twenty nine. If you don't want to spend that much, right next to it is the store brand aspirin. A Walgreens brand for three forty nine. Same number of pills? A hundred pills in each. Same ingredient. Aspirin and aspirin. And half the price. Less than half. So here is the question. Why does anyone buy Bayer? Actually, let's not pick on Bayer. Why do we buy Advil brand or Tylenol or Aleve when there are cheaper store brand versions sitting right next to them? 
Sometimes there's a sign pointing out they have the same active ingredient and breaking down the price per pill to show you just how much money you can save. And yet, people still buy Bayer and Tylenol and Advil, etc. This particular fact about headache remedies has seemed incredibly curious for a long time. This is Jesse Shapiro's colleague, Matthew Jensko. They wanted to figure out what was going on here. Was it just ignorance? Do people just not know that generic and brand versions are basically the same? Along with a couple colleagues, they decided to test this idea. We came up with what is probably the simplest idea you've ever heard of, which is let's just look and see whether people who are well-informed about these things still pay extra to buy brands. People who are well-informed, that means doctors, nurses, and pharmacists. Do they fork over extra cash for Bayer and Tylenol, etc.? The researchers looked at a huge data set from over 66 million shopping trips, and we can cut to the chase here. The answer? Lo and behold, nurses, doctors, and pharmacists are much less likely to buy brands than average consumers. Pharmacists, for example, buy generics about 90% of the time. The answer to the mystery of who buys Bayer and Tylenol, it is the rest of us. We bought generics only 70% of the time, which means 30% of the time we paid extra to get the brand name. As far as we can tell, in a world where everybody was as well-informed as a pharmacist or a nurse, the market share of the brands would be much, much, much smaller than it is today. Jensko says people with more education tended to buy branded painkillers less often, but even fancy degrees were no guarantee. <laughs> Lawyers look just like everybody else. They buy the brand a bunch of the times. It is genuine Bayer, the wonder drug. Can you shake it so I can hear the sound? I called an actual lawyer, his name is Ian Rexrode, to try to answer a question that this study doesn't directly measure. What exactly is going on in our heads when we decide to pay twice as much as we need to for aspirin? Ian Rexrode says that he bought the brand name for two reasons. One, when he bought it, he was in law school and reading a lot about product liability. And somewhere in the back of his head, he wondered, do generics really have the same quality controls? And then there was this warning on the bottle about something called RISE syndrome. And I have no idea what that is, and it says it's incredibly rare, but it's right there on the package and makes me think that it's the kind of drug not to mess with. Kind of drug not to mess with. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't have time to make the decision, so I'm just going to you know, pay an extra buck or two and buy the brand name. For the record, generic drugs have to meet the same Food and Drug Administration safety and efficacy standards as brand name drugs. I asked several people who had a bottle of Bayer or Tylenol or Advil at home why they'd bought the brand name. One guy said he liked the shape of the bottle. Another said he didn't want his wife to think he was cheap. One woman told me Bayer reminded her of her grandmother. But it seems like we also buy brands when we lack information, like Ian, the lawyer, did. Jesse Shapiro, the economist, says we all do this. No one, he says, is an expert in everything. our own David Kestenbaum. And you know, when I heard this story, I, I realized, oh yeah, I do, I do this too. <laughs> I have branded pain relievers coming out the wazoo. We have children's Thailand. We have all this stuff where there's a generic that's the, the same active ingredient. You know, the, the thing is, it's funny is I am also that guy, but I think it's just because I 
am kind of vain. So, like, with shampoo, like, I will buy the head and shoulders brand. So, wait, are you saying vain, like, if somebody comes over there in your bathroom, that you don't want them to see that you have off-brand dandruff, medic- dandruff <laughs> shampoo? You want them to see they have the real stuff? It's, it's more like I want to make sure the dandruff shampoo is working. I see. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, moving on. <laughs> okay. Um, labels, right? So, one of the biggest ugliest labels out there that we talk about all the time. It is unemployed. But this label does not actually tell the full story. Yeah, because when we talk about the unemployment rate, what we're talking about is people who want jobs and are looking for them but don't have them. But there's this whole other category out there of people who don't have jobs and are not included in the unemployment rate. And that group is growing bigger and bigger. About 36% of adults in the United States today are not looking for jobs at all. They've dropped out of the labor force. We talk about this as the labor participation rate. Right. And that's not counted in the unemployment rate at all. And so we were wondering at Planet Money, who are these millions of adults, these dropouts from the labor force who aren't counted? Our own Lisa Chow, she found some of them. It sounds pretty scary when you see the numbers. Nearly 90 million people old enough to work are not working. The percentage of adults not in the workforce has grown at an unprecedented rate since the recession. But when you break down the numbers, it's not quite as alarming as it might seem. Lots of people have a pretty good reason for not working. It's called retirement. Right now I'm at Dyke Marsh, which is a wonderful place. It's a nature preserve that the National Park Service runs. I catch Dixie Summers on her cell phone. Instead of poring over jobs numbers, Summers used to work for the U.S. Labor Department. She's now spending her days doing what she loves, birdwatching along the Potomac River in Virginia. She's 64 and a baby boomer. And it's this group that's inflated the percentage of people not looking for work. So we've got demographics driving some people out of the workforce. Here's another reason. I always kind of saw myself going to school. Jeanette Yave is a student at a community college in New York. It turns out since the recession, young people have dropped out of the workforce at an incredibly fast pace. Now, that could be because instead of working, they're staying in school longer. But it could also have something to do with the fact that students like Yave, a 20-year-old with no work experience, can't find part-time work even when they try. So they stopped trying. Earlier in the summer, Yavi applied for a job at a store that sells dolls. I didn't get the job. I thought I was perfectly fine and capable of taking care of little girls and like just giving them a doll. And not to be too pretentious, but it's like it didn't seem that hard of a job to get into. Yave illustrates that there's a fine line between being unemployed and being outside the labor force. And here's where the numbers get a little tricky. Had Yave applied for her job in the last four weeks, she would technically be counted as unemployed, increasing by just the tiniest amount the unemployment rate. But because she stopped looking for a job to focus on her anatomy class, she's not counted. Now, here's our third reason someone gave up work. Sometimes we play with cotton or guinea pig. Evie Byers is seven, and she didn't give up a job, but her father did. My name is Michael Byers. I'm a stay-at-home dad and have been for five, almost six years now. Byers used to work at a newspaper factory in Columbia, Missouri, making $9 an hour. And he did what lots of people do when they have kids. He looked at how much he was making, how much daycare cost, weighed how much he enjoyed his job, and decided in the end it wasn't worth it. I asked Byers if he thinks there's a job available for him now. I don't think so. Like, I don't think they've hired in years at that factory. And then down here, where we're at now, there's a lot of immigrant labor. And, I mean, I guess Walmart is always hiring. I could work Walmart. 
Byers is lucky his wife has a job as a doctor. And finally, we meet Terry Meyer, who used to work in human resources at Sony. I think at last count, I had sent out like 185 resumes or responded to 185 actual openings. And of that, I've gotten two opportunities where I actually went to a live interview. Meyer has been out of work for three years, and the Labor Department might describe her as marginally attached to the labor force. She's not part of the labor force, not counted as unemployed, but she wants a job and has been looking, just not recently. Retirees, students, parents, they all have pretty normal reasons for leaving the workforce, even though a bad economy can still affect their decisions about when to leave or return to work. Still, it's really this last kind of person who's most alarming to economists. Two and a half million Americans are like Terry Meyer. They've given up for the time being, not to go birdwatching, but because they've been looking for a job for so long. That was our own Lisa Chow. As always, let us know what you think. Send us a note, planetmoney at npr.org. Or you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify. I'm Alex Bloomberg. I'm Zoe Chase. Thanks for listening.